0: Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the web editor. Nothing seems to rally Trump's base quite like the fabricated or wildly exaggerated stories about the threat of Central American violence coming north. And despite marketing himself as the anti-deep state candidate who tells tough truths about the border, Trump never gets around to mentioning the United States role in creating that violence even if it happened under Obama's watch. In the May issue, Daniel Castro describes the 2012 gang truce that led to a 40% drop in El Salvador's homicide rate and how that peace was undermined by the U.S. security apparatus. As you'll hear during our conversation, that interference is part of a long history of Washington's heavy-handed approach to the small country. I began by asking Daniel about the United States' role in El Salvador's civil war and how that primed law enforcement and other entities to deal with gang violence.
1: To the extent that it's been involved in Latin America, uh, U.S. has been, had a presence in El Salvador for a long time. But I think in terms of the war, a lot of people who who study El Salvador will say that it was kind of a second Vietnam in terms of U.S. involvement, maybe not, obviously not as intense or, or not as comprehensive. but almost like a lab, a laboratory to, for the U.S. to try almost the same counterinsurgency strategy that it had tried in Vietnam, mm. and maybe some things that hadn't worked in Vietnam. I mean, a lot, a lot of people who planned, Greg Grandin has a, a great book about it, Empire's Workshop, goes into how the same sort of military folks who were involved in planning U.S. strategy in Vietnam were then doing the same thing in El Salvador. It was kind of a, a lab for U.S. counterinsurgency strategy. And you know Reagan administration, it was the Cold War and, and they were obviously backing El Salvador's right wing military led government providing weapons and and one of the things that prolonged the Civil war were, were helicopters. Mm. The sides would have had to come to some sort of agreement much earlier if it hadn't been for for the helicopters that the Reagan administration provided to to the military. This is jumping forward, but a lot of those weapons, those M- M16s and even you know mines, Um, or provided by the U.S. would would end up uh, having an effect on the gang war. I think especially in terms of this idea of counterinsurgency strategy, a lot of the people involved in the truce, the the sort of principal players, had major roles to play, you know, did play major roles in the civil war. Raul Mihango was the commander of the guerrilla special forces battalion. Um, And Mujia Páez was a general in the military. And and so a lot of these people who at least were involved in the truce, Mihango and his sort of inner circle they were Mm ex-guerrias. And and they had a lot to say about how in the last decade or so or more that the Salvadoran government, in partnership with the U.S., because it's always in partnership with the U.S. because U.S. is funding public security, Mm -hmm. has kind of employed, as its approach to gang violence, close parallel to U.S. counterinsurgency strategy, which was the same thing in Vietnam, was about kind of this idea of exterminating and destroying the environment. For example, the El Mozote massacre, mm-hmm. destroying the guerrillas' habitat, their their ability to connect with the community, and I think Rios Mont, who was the, the Guatemalan leader in general, said it's you drain the environment, and 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 eventually you get you'll get to the guerrilla. So that same counterinsurgency strategy was really important in terms of how the the Salvadoran government, again in partnership with the US, decided to take its approach to to gangs.
0: And how did, how did the U.S. come to fund security, to fund the police?
1: You know, the U.S. strategy in, in Latin America has always had like a really, this idea of security, right? And most of the people I talked to, basically everyone I talked to, the overemphasis on security that, that the U.S. has had in terms of funding, um, you know, for a long time. Um, so... Funding the Salvadoran police is basically just an outgrowth of the same mentality that led, for example, the Reagan administration to fund, you know, the U.S. ambassador today, you know, says very plainly, like the U.S.'s number one goal in El Salvador is to stop migration. So this idea that emphasis on security maintains stability and stability is something that impedes migration.
0: It seems like kind of a backwards way of doing that, but then also like a kind of natural mistake to make. The idea that, oh, we just need more police. We need bigger rifles for the police and that will make everybody more safe. And it's like, well, come on, <laughs> come on. Right, right,
1: right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, there was a small mention of, the, of this in the piece and, and, and there are some some reinsertion programs there's one called Yo Cambio happening right now that actually is like really great. And, and the embassy is involved with it and they're funding it. But yes, to a large extent, the, the funding is it's more towards law enforcement and prisons and and kind of in, in police training and not as much in terms of, you know, reinsertion and prevention, which is which is what a lot of people, you know, in El Salvador, you know, have seen that these programs work. Going back to your to your, to your question, I think part of it is an issue of. Who holds sway in making U.S. foreign policy? Right, Hmm. the central conflicts in sort of getting U.S. support for the truce, which was essential. Everybody understood it was essential because how can you have a functioning truce countrywide with these gangs and these groups if the police are not involved? Right. Raúl Mijango and and everyone involved, and also Roberto Castillo, who's also like played a big role they knew how important it was to get U.S. support in this, and they tried repeatedly. But it, it was clear that while some people on the diplomatic side, the U.S. foreign policy apparatus
0: mm-hmm. were
1: supportive of what they were doing. Paula Luers, who was a close friend of Mihango, who, who kind of got into this process a bit later, he talked about having dinners at the embassy with the U.S. ambassador, Marie Carmen Aponte, and she would kind of bring him in and invite him over whenever someone important from the US would come and kind of give him a space to uh, to talk about this the truce. So there were people in the embassy who were definitely supportive of it. But it ended up being clear that the people who hold who hold sway at least when it comes to policy in Latin America are on the security side. It was people in the FBI who were against it from the beginning. There's a reference to it in the piece about how U- US intelligence officers in El Salvador initially reacted you know where they were angry about it, because mm-hmm. it, it supposedly you know interfered with these intelligence operations that they were that they were conducting, and Mihango wasn't wasn't super forthcoming about that. But supposedly one one of the things was that gang informants in the prisons stopped talking to the FBI. Um, right, they weren't getting anything from the FBI, and they saw the truce as an opportunity to improve their situation. I think it just comes down to this tradition and this mentality, this sway and power that. The security side of us policy has in latin america
0: there seems to be a really complicated or maybe it's not complicated way in which everyday people interact with gangs um if it's kickbacks if it's you can't go down this street because it belongs to a certain gang can you talk about the sort of social control that gangs in el salvador exert over the general population
1: yeah. in San Salvador San Salvador is the capital so it, and it, it's a, it's a big congested city um, and, and and I think you know in some cases in San Salvador it's a little bit easier to uh, avoid right like you you know you know that there are certain areas where just as you said you you, you can't go but if you can afford to live in a gated Colonia with a security guard, if you, if you can afford to drive to work, there's a way that you can isolate yourself from it in San Salvador that, that, that you can't maybe in, in like a small town. For example, in these, in these marginalized communities, I mean, it's, it's, it's just insanely difficult to conduct your day-to-day life without having some sort of contact with gangs, whether it's extortion. Like Mihango himself, who had this business selling gas tanks, and that was the first time that he that he interacted with gangs, you know, having to pay an extortion fee and trying to negotiate the extortion fee. Whether it's the extortion fee, whether it's just like everyday harassment. You know, it, it was really one of the things that was interesting about San Salvador, just Uber drivers, right? And a lot of these Uber drivers were sort of middle class people. Some of them could afford to buy their own car to, to do this. And for some of them, it was like the first time that they were getting acquainted with the with the geography, of the city in terms of gangs. So they had to kind of re-envision their own idea of the city's geography and know, okay, this neighborhood is MS-13, this neighborhood is Barrio 18, I can't go there. And, and it's also, it's it's not just like, oh, I can't go there, I can't go there, because there's there's differences between the kinds of gang members in different neighborhoods, right? Because you go in and some, some are okay, right? Some will just ask, who are you and where are you from? But some will threaten you, some will, will demand money. And that's just in San Salvador, where I think as you get to, to smaller towns and smaller cities, it becomes even more difficult to to avoid, um, just because of this sort of control. And and gangs, in a, in a sense, become another state. Right. And for example, in the town where my where my where my dad's from, where I also spent time while I was writing this piece, I was in a conversation with someone from the mayor's office, and someone asked him, "Well, why is this park so dirty? You know, that there's garbage all over the place." So like. And they were like, well, that, that park belongs to Abadio 18, and we have to ask permission to go clean it. It's all-encompassing. I mean, it, it, it just, it's every facet of life in El Salvador in some way touches it in some way. And, and especially if you have to take public transportation, things like that. I, I, I mean, and obviously it, it's even worse if, if you're female. I mean, the threat of gender violence and in and, and communities and things like that. It's just so so huge. It, it it is like another state. And at the beginning of your question, I thought you were asking about like how the political kind of sphere interacts with gangs, and I think that's another important part of it as well. Yeah, because before Bihango approached the leaders in Sacatras, politicians had been trying to not had been trying to they had been meeting clandestinely with gangs for years and paying gangs in order to get. mobilize their communities for votes. And that's a whole nother side of this. I mean, there's people who I talk to, who basically believe that some for some politicians, it's, it's in their interests to keep gangs in control.
0: Right? I mean, obviously, this is an existing way of doing things and existing power structure. And if you change it, people are going to feel threatened, they might they might lose the power that they have. So they're going to make it seem like this truce is just beyond the pale. You know, speaking to gang members or giving them flat screen TVs or whatever is just unacceptable. When in reality, the politicians are getting a lot more from gang members than that. Absolutely.
1: absolutely, Like totally all, it's a way of exercising control over these communities because the politicians have someone that they can go to when they need something, when they, it's, it's, it's almost like a politician's, link with marginalized communities, right? And it's also this idea of like the same way that gangs have been utilized for political purposes in the US by the Trump administration, right? MS team. The Salvadoran government has been doing that for years, right? And 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 that's part of part of again how this how what led to Manodura, right, was as I said in the piece, you know, this sudden decision by Arena, again the right wing party, to take gangs and make them the national boogeyman, to, to to turn them into the public enemy. And it helped them politically because they won that they won that next election.
0: The function is more or less the same, but how would you characterize that demonization? Obviously, the Trump administration's approach is blatantly racist. Right. It's very xenophobic. Right. So how is that message conveyed in El Salvador? In your piece, you mentioned that there is some overlap between the type of people who joined gangs and the type of people who were joining the FMLN.
1: You know, I mean, I think in El Salvador, obviously, it doesn't have that that same racist tinge to it, but it may have this kind of like, um, well, first of all, I, I think while there are some similarities between young men who joined the guerrillas and joined the insurgency, I don't want to oversimplify, right? I don't want to say that they're... Mm-hmm. That they're Exactly the same. Even though some of the motives are, are the same as in the piece, when I talked about like young men reacting to police violence, mm-hmm. I do think that the gang phenomenon is is just its own thing, right? And it, it's it was something that's shaped by migration, and it, it's just it's, it is very different mm-hmm. from the kind of factors that led not just young men but women too to join the FMLN. But I think you know in El Salvador, I think there's a there's a slightly sort of religious sense to it. Like there's there's Mm. this sense of literal demonization, like, you know, evil, this idea Mm -hmm. of evil. I think in in El Salvador, man, like if you grew up Catholic like me and and, and there's this this really strong sense of like El Diablo, right? So so there there's this it sounds a little far-fetched, but it it is like these people are the personification of evil. Just literal demonization is really strong. And, And just this this belief in the idea of evil and I think it is easier for for the Salvadoran government to demonize gang members than it is in the U.S. Just because when they started mano gangs were were not nearly as widespread as they are now. But but they do terrorize communities. I mean, it's not like I'm. It's not like they don't. Right. It, 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 people do hate gangs because it's and it, it, they don't just hate them because the government decided to demonize them. They hate them because they 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 were people that were dealing with them every day in their communities and they were being terrorized and and extorted and and murdered. You know, people have had have lost family members, you know, it's not, it's not something made up. Um, Right,
0: right. The supposed violence of migration to the US is hypothetical. The threat is more, fill in your own worst nightmares about these, you know, seething hordes of people who are definitely coming. And there's only one man who could stop them.
1: Right, right. Absolutely. But at the same time, uh, you know, it's also just like, Similar, right? These, these, you know, if if you look at Salvadoran media, you know, Salvadoran media has definitely played a role, right? In, in terms of mm-hmm. the same kind of images and the same things that we see about gangs in the U.S. media, just like what's the kind of like stereotypical image, right? It's it's men just like behind bars um, with like tattoos on their faces, and and that same kind of that same kind of horror imagery is used in El Salvador, and with the same result, right? arena or you know whether it's trump or whether it's arena you know we're the ones who are going to be tough on them right we're the ones who are going to and since the truce it's it's been this there's been this effort by the right to kind of um paint the left with this brush of like being soft on gang members right um just just exactly as like trump does right (laughs) i mean it's basically um so, Despite yeah. facts, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there, it, it, there are there are there are you know a lot of differences, but but for sure, for sure, the parallels are very strong.
0: I actually want to talk a bit about the police again mm-hmm. because I think that's an interesting component of this, yeah. in so much as they are a lot of them are feared as much as the gangs. Yes, and that they have a lot of firepower. So mm-hmm. I I mean this is sort of a question. This is a maybe a hard question to answer, but what sort of a person joins the police force in El Salvador and what sort of social control do they exert over everyday people?
1: So we say that they get a lot of money. So, so law enforcement in, in El Salvador, obviously, they do get a lot of money from the U.S., um, hundreds of millions of dollars. But, I mean, the police officers themselves are making, I think it's $475 a month. So the police officers themselves aren't making um, – there are police officers who, who are people who just have a job, just like any other, any other people. And I, and I, I don't want to make it seem as if, you know, the entire Salvadoran police force is this rotten mass of, you know, uh, corruption and, 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 and violence. But I think it goes back to the Civil War, you know, and, and it goes back to this idea in El Salvador of the militar – the militar is like the soldier the 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 police officer the law enforcement and it's such a it's such a like kind of hallowed figure in in the Salvadoran psyche I, even in my own family right my i mean my family was divided sort of during the war you know distant cousins who were commanders in the FMLN and then on the other side there were my uh, paternal grandfather who was very pro military you know mm-hmm. and and it's this kind of thing of like there is this swath a part of Salvadoran society that that you're so infatuated with the military. And it's this sense of like, yeah, I mean, it's very much uh, uh, about power Mm -hmm. um, and and respect. And it was this automatic respect that even after the war, I mean, even after all the abuses and, you know, I I think there was a a UN report that said that the military was responsible for something like 90% of civilian deaths during the war. Even after all that, there are people in El Salvador who still have this great respect for the military. And I think that, that kind of goes into being the police, all, the police a little bit. And if, and,
0: well, that's also not so different than the U S right. I exactly. Hasten exactly. To add. And, 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 you know,
1: what's interesting in the, the PNC, the, the national police force in El Salvador, the, the Policia Nacional Civil. So it's the national civil police. After the war, it was actually, you know, it was seen as a model for, kind of the post-war transition. Because mm-hmm. combatants from both sides, from both the guerrillas and the soldiers, that's where they went after the war. They became they became officers for the PNC. And it, the institution did have a lot of respect and did have a lot of authority in and in, in, in El Salvador for, for a while. So this sense of the Salvadoran police as being, you know, this kind of abusive you know, and in the, in the human rights violations is is kind of new. I mean, it, it, it's something that 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 I think goes hand in hand with Mano Dura. Mm-hmm. Um So I'm sorry, that, that's kind of a, a long answer. But since since Manauluta, you know, um, it's definitely the the perception has definitely changed. And I interviewed a human rights lawyer who told me several stories about her clients and these kinds of interactions with the police. There is a sense of it, it, not all commun- not all these marginalized communities are like this, but there is a sense that they that while the gangs are terrible and and they extort them, it, they they sort of they sort of know the gangs, right? The, the gangs are 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 in the community; they're part of it. And I think that that's something that, that gets forgotten is that when you were negotiating the truce, it wasn't just the government and the gangs; it was the government and these like structures in these communities. That there were mm-hmm. these families that were attached to the gang. It was it was It's this whole family network. Um, so it, it was a sense that for some people, the gangs are more familiar. And for example, like one story just very quickly that I was told was about this 18-year-old who was a cab driver. And one day a gang member barged into his house who had been shot and basically told the kid, that he had to take him to the hospital. So they drove to the hospital and they get stopped by the police on the way. And the police saw that the, the kid was driving and the gang member and thought he was a gang member as well. And they took him to the police station and tortured him and took pictures of, you know, this, like, they didn't kill him. They they, they just beat him very badly. And they took pictures of his beaten body and, and basically sent it out in like a WhatsApp, you know, message chain, and, and and this happens a lot now. I mean, it's a sense of like, there, there, there are parts inside the police, not 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 all the police, but they're um, definitely what people say, you know, or people think of as, as death squads, who target gang members and and execute them and and brag about it amongst each other and send each other, you know, pictures of, of dead gang members' bodies on WhatsApp. Things like that, and a lot of people believe that this, where it is right now, it is a result of of not not just Manolura, but the fallout of the truce. I mean, the the, the sense of this idea of, of of this really violent war between gangs and the state, and it's not just police targeting gang members; it's gang members targeting police as well. I think there was a piece a couple of months ago in the Washington Post about you know Salvadoran police who are. Who Who are leaving the country because yeah, their families are threatened and and all these kinds of things This is part of what's what's relatively new, I think after the truce is this is this kind of tit for tat back and forth now between between gangs and the police that, that has the kind of uh sense of 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 a war i mean people people there are people who who refer to it as a war
0: recently, the trump administration has said oh, we're going to cut. Yes funding to these countries uh guatemala el salvador yeah. honduras where they're not doing enough yeah. they're just they're just so inept we're gonna cut all funding and then they can just deal with the gang members right. there and that will stop migration right. um again a fundamental misunderstanding of what's happening right. here but what have there been any developments since that announcement or have there been other sort of developments in mihango's case
1: well, uh, no, not that I know of. I am just speaking from sort of conjecture here, but I think people in the Salvador government are sort of hoping that this, this is just something that goes away. (laughs) You know (laughs) what I mean? That this is just kind of, he'll forget that that this is just an announcement, (laughs) like, like all, like all these other announcements that have been tweeted out and, Mm -hmm. and sort of, you know, Pompeo convinces him to, you know, uh, to change his mind. Um, You know, and it's also, uh, El Salvador recently elected a new president, Nayib Bukele, who takes office June 1st. And he's he's very much, um, you know, pro-U.S. He's, he's, he's talked about how he wants to revamp the, the country's relationship with the U.S. And I, I think maybe, you know, Bukele is probably hoping that he can find a way to, you know, but, but who, who knows what's going to happen. I think this whole idea of like USAID, I mean, it's always it's it's always been problematic, right? I mean, it, it, it's it's yes, it's um, in a lot of cases it's done it's done more harm than good, and you know I'm sure that there are there are a lot of people out there who just say, fine, you know, no more USAID, like great, um, we'll we'll stop causing problems down there, and but obviously, aside from building prisons and things like that, there are a lot of important programs you know, not just important, but vital uh, programs that receive USAID funding. In one case, El Salvador, you know, and this is one thing that I'm hoping to write about soon, actually, um, is is this program called Yo Cambio. It's one of the most successful, is probably the most successful reinsertion program that they've had in El Salvador. And and it's partly funded by the U.S. And it, it trains people in, in prison's skills. And, and uh, some of these people are former gang members and Kind of helps with their with their reinsertion back to back into you know Salvadoran society, and so this is like an example of a program that you know has had positive results. That's just something very kind of small, and I mean there there's larger you know uh, repercussions of cutting U.S. aid. I mean I think just like I don't know if, if you if you saw this like three three part piece in New York or that Jonathan Blitzer did on Guatemala, you know the 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 U.S the the funding being cut for programs that were helping mitigate climate change in the Guatemalan Highlands, you know, right. so things like that. I mean, that,
0: and then also, yeah, and other things that unrelated to gangs that right. help people stay, like catede, exactly all
1: things here. that you know funded by the U.S. by USA that just make make communities more livable. You know, like in El Salvador, you just drive around El Salvador and, and you know parks and 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 things like that. There's a you know there's a plaque saying that USA contributed. It's not like you know all US USAID is bad, right? I, I think people are just kind of holding their breath and hoping this this goes away. In terms of Mihango, he, he was convicted for the extortion case, and you know he's he's, get, he's got 13 years um, in prison. And now yesterday actually it was the was the beginning of the Truce case the the retrial in 2016 i believe all these these people who were involved in the truce you know every everyone from mihango to Nelson rauda who was the director of prisons under mungi payes and you know public school teachers a, a portion of people who were involved they were all acquitted in 2016 We know when when and the judge kind of basically came to the conclusion that they that they were they couldn't be charged because they were they were basically acting on behalf of the government they were acting on orders from above above meaning president ex-pres Mauricio Funes and, and Mujía Páez, who was the you know the minister of security so how could these people be charged for 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 working and you know you know basically carrying out a government policy this is what the judge decided and, and many people in El Salvador you know that I talked to really admired this judge he's one of the most admired judges in El Salvador and it was a very obviously even handed decision. And he, he, you know, in his in his decision, he wrote that, you know, that he thinks that the chain of command should be investigated. Again, pointing to Mauricio Funes or Mugin Fayez, supporting this idea that a lot of people involved, you know, had that that um they were they were basically being being scapegoated. Um so now the same case is going to be retried and that, that started yesterday. So, yeah, I mean, I I don't know how the Trump administration decision in terms of aid is going to affect that case. I don't, I don't, I don't think it will, you know, I, I don't see it. I don't see how it will. I, you know, when I, when I interviewed the ambassador, I, I was, because the sense in El Salvador is, is basically that the U.S. is running law enforcement, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, the, you know, whether it's true or not, the perception is that these big cases that happen that they don't really go forth without the embassy's okay. Basically, that the, that, the, that the U.S. embassy is just, it just has a really, really close relationship to the attorney general's office. And so that's why I think some of the people involved because of this close relationship. And some of that, I think, is maybe maybe a little overblown, but I think some of it is is definitely warranted. I mean, you know, I, I have family members who who worked as prosecutors in El Salvador, and the walls of of their offices are, you know, lined with all these USAID, these diplomas from USAID courses and all these kinds of things that were given at the embassy. So, yeah, the U.S. has a huge, overwhelming role, training and being involved with basically the judicial branch in El Salvador. Um, So that's why I think there is this perception that, you know, this case against Bihango and against all these people involved is proceeding. The, that the u s is in some way nudging the attorney general's office to to make an example of these people. Who knows how true it is? You know, who knows um, obviously the the ambassador denied it. she she said that the the embassy does not get involved in specific cases. It's hard to imagine that there that some kind of communication can take place, but again, that, that's that's conjecture. the level the level of 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 how involved they are and how much attention they pay to specific cases. It's conjecture for me.
0: I wanted to ask because perhaps if there is the threat of no more USA, then there might be a second look back at Mihango's approach and, you know, this, this, the truce and a reconsideration of that. (laughs) But I don't know, you know, maybe maybe people could admit that they're wrong or that it's something was something right was happening. That's that's interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's an interesting idea in terms of like now that, you know, these like hundreds of millions of dollars in in funding for for law enforcement is not coming through. These basically death squads within the police and things like that. Is it is it time to, to look back on this approach? You know, um, there's definitely a swath of people in El Salvador, like, like I referenced at the end of the piece, that that sort of see this as the only approach. Maybe not the truce itself, right? the same the same kind of the, the same exact approach, no, but but some kind of dialogue, some kind of conversation because the dynamics are different now, you know and i i was I wanted to be careful in the piece again about like sort of presenting the truce as like this magic bullet, right no and 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 it's different now because the dynamics are different in El salvador but i I think just in terms of this idea of dialogue in terms of like even just between the police and gangs, right like Okay, like if if you take one step back, we'll take one step back. This kind of thing of just kind of like letting the tension kind of come down a little bit. That's that's that was what people were referring to. But again, it's just so complicated. I mean, it, because because again, how do you get the Salvadoran public behind something like that? It's similar to to I mean, the situations are vastly different, but the same kind of um, sense of of how do you involve society in terms of, if you think about negotiating with FARC in Colombia, right? I mean, there's lots of people in Colombia who are, who are vehemently against it, who, you know, and, and it's this whole idea of like dialogue and justice, you know, maybe let's negotiate, but these people who committed these crimes, are they going to pay for the crimes that they committed? You can, you can see some of the similar sentiment in El Salvador like the the driver at the end of the piece says all of them to the fire you know that that's that's how a lot of people uh, in El Salvador feel about gangs i would say most most people right and the idea of the idea of having any kind of dialogue conducting any kind of dialogue with them i think is is just really radioactive still because of the way that the truce was conducted and because of the way that it it fell apart i don't know what what the way forward is you know i i don't but I, I think people definitely people some some people in power and and politicians you know secretly you know I don't think I know because because people who were involved communicated this to me where are do have a sense that some sort of dialogue has to has to happen like look at the the, the, the president who, who was just elected Naibu Bukele, when he was he was mayor of San Salvador and just to just to have like a a march on to commemorate the the canonization of of uh, Archbishop Romero. He had, he had to negotiate with gangs just for this march to happen in the middle of San, of San Salvador and, and, and go through different communities in San Salvador.
0: There's this impression that you're dealing with the devil, that you're transgressing something that cannot. And again, there, are, it is something that has touched everyone's lives in that country. So of course it's going to be very hot. Yeah. And it, and, it, and it's
1: also, it's, it's also this idea of corruption, right? I mean, I think, I think, Salvadorans, and you, I mean, you could say this for. I live in Mexico. You can, you know, I, I see the same, same thing here. In terms of, it's it's a population that's been so traumatized by corruption mm-hmm. that this kind of attempt. I mean, so many people that I talk to, whether it's true or not, they just think that it's all a big scam. That Mejia and all these people involved were, were just doing this in order to somehow get money or or, you know, that it was basically all this this huge conspiracy and this payday for Mihango and all these gang members. And I mean, that's, that's the level of paranoia in terms of what corruption does to this kind of society that they, they just don't trust anything they're being told.
0: Again, it's a totally natural thing, but for whatever reason, we don't think of gang violence or religious, you know, like, people like the Taliban, groups like the Taliban, that they are a fact of life. You kind of can't get around them, but there is no attempt at reconciliation in the way that there was with apartheid or other instances where there was a civil war and then there was sort of like a finite end to things. Right, right.
1: Yeah, and I mean it's just just so difficult. I made the comparison to FARC, but but you 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 can't it's you can't really make that comparison right because because I, I think to negotiate with these groups the the leadership has to be centralized and there needs to be some sense of what they want right mm-hmm. what do you what do you what do you give them again in El Salvador one of the reasons people were so angry about it is because it became clear that the government ha- helped gangs to become more organized when they finally decided when they said okay we're gonna do this and they signed on and everybody was ready the gang leaders came to Mihango and they said, look, if you want this to happen, you need to you need to let us take control of these clicas on the street because because we're we're in here. And, you know, Mihango arranged for buses for 30 gang members to leave the prison just to take them to these communities so they could straighten out the cliques Wow. You know, I mean, yeah, it's it's insane. I mean, when you think about it, it's just and and Mihango had to had to be on the bus because the gang members told him they demanded that he go with them because they they thought that the government was just going to take them out on the buses and shoot them or something like that right. it was literally the, the state was providing a means was giving these gang members infrastructure in order to consolidate their leadership and and that's why that's why a lot of people say that oh this whole thing it only made the gangs you know stronger and Mihang and all these people involved say, well, no, that's a lie. But it, it's not a lie. They, they did make the gang stronger, but it was because they had to. Because if not, how can you negotiate with, you know, whatever it is, 250 different cliques of, of MS-13 throughout the country? It, it's, it, it, was, it was just so complicated. It's really, I, that, that's part of, I think, what stays with me is, is that people, the majority of people I talk to in, in, in El Salvador, I hate this guy. I mean, they just they can't even they can't even look at his face on TV, (laughs) Um, you know, because of all these things that I've mentioned, because they think he's corrupt. But I mean, after after just really digging into it, it it's amazing. I mean, it's just mind blocking what 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 he did in order to make this thing work. I mean, going from prison to prison, shuttling back and forth around the country, trying to coordinate all these groups. I can't imagine, I, I mean, how, how difficult and how complicated this was. It's still, it's still kind of amazing to me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible to me that the, the, that, that the truce lasted as long as it did.
0: We can end it there, but thank you so much.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Violet. Appreciate Appreciate you having me.
0: You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is "Cut and Shoot" by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get twelve issues for twenty-one ninety-seven, visit harpers.org/save.